Hello and welcome to Anomalous Waves, a podcast discussing all things strange. I'm John. I'm Ami. And today we're going to be discussing strange lights, the forms they take, and the lore surrounding them. Don't forget to check our show notes for our contact information, social media, and all of our references for today's episode. If you have a spooky story, a comment, or a suggestion for a topic you want us to research, please reach out at anomalouswaves at gmail.com or any of our social media. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Anomalous Waves. The Min Min Light is an unexplained light phenomenon that has been reported in the outback of Australia. Many reports describe these glowing balls of light that have been reported to approach witnesses as well as chase and keep up pace with moving vehicles. So this first account is from the Sydney Morning Herald, printed on Saturday, January 25th, 1947, written by Bill Beatty. Now, I believe this may be one of the tales responsible for giving these ghostly orbs their name of the Minmin light. Bill starts out by describing the phenomenon He says, it's known locally as the ghost light. It's a moon of light suspended in space, darting hither and thither, vanishing ghost-like in the dark recesses of trees. He then explains that the locality in which the sightings take place are near Bolia uh, in western Queensland. There was a notorious shanty known as the Min Min Hotel. It says uh, that this place made their money from selling diluted liquor and drugs to unweary shearers and station hands. A station hand is someone employed to work at a cattle station. Uh, Many of these unlucky customers would die from overdose, uh, bar fights, or just be killed for their money. Oh, it's horrible. Now, conveniently, there was a graveyard right behind the hotel. Oh, of course. <laughs> where many of uh, these folks were buried. So it was eventually destroyed in a fire. Now, that was 70 years before this article was written. That's around 1877. And I did the math before I didn't do it just now. Okay, I was going to say, that was some fast calculations. <laughs> so... This sighting that's talked about in the article took place shortly after the fire and was reported to the police by a stockman, which is an Australian cattle rancher. About 10 o'clock this evening, I was riding not far from the Min Min graveyard when all of a sudden I saw a strange glow appear right in the middle of the cemetery. I looked at it amazed. The glow got bigger till it was about the size of a watermelon. I couldn't believe my eyes as I saw it hovering over the ground. And then I broke into a cold sweat for it started to come towards me. It was too much for my nerves. I was terror stricken. I dug the spurs into the horse and headed towards Bulia as fast as I could. But every time I looked back over my shoulder, I could see the light following me. It only disappeared when I got to the outskirts of the town. So, of course, the cop made light of the situation, and he became the joke of the whole town. But then soon after, there came report after report 
of people seeing this same type of light. Mm. By 1947, there was already thousands of reports. So the writer also mentions that it has some things in common with the will-o'-wisp. What's that? Uh, that's usually found in northern Europe. It's a glowing ball of light found in like marshes and swamps. Ooh, weird. So he writes that the will-o'-wisp is created by decaying animal matter in churchyards or marshes. But the Australian light shines in a graveyard but then moves over rocky plains, unlike the European marshlands. I think this would be a good time to go into some of the scientific explanations of the lights. Good idea. So, like the one just mentioned, marsh gas. Also known as swamp gas or bog gas, it's a combination of methane and phosphine, which can self-ignite. The gases develop from the breakdown of organic material like dead animals and plants in persistently wet areas. The main component is methane and is a flammable gas. Phosphines are flammable, but also toxic gases that can burst into spontaneous flames when they come in contact with oxygen. Ooh. So you'll hear marsh gas all the time. And like, yeah. even in old... UFO movies, like, it was just marsh gas. Mm -hmm. So another common one is a bioluminescence. This is the production and emission of light by a living organism, like fireflies. Mm -hmm. The idea is that swarming insects that have taken on these characteristics create this flowing, glowing orb. So another one is refraction. Now, the Fata Morgana mirage um, can cause uh, remote lights or objects to appear above the horizon. Have you ever seen those pictures of like boats that look like they're floating above the water? Yeah. That's what that is. So this can result in an object which is normally below the horizon to become visible. Some also say it is because of the heat in the desert along with the refraction of light. So another common one is St. Elmo's fire which is the one you told me about. Yeah. Which is a weather phenomenon uh, seen during thunderstorms when the ground below the storm is electrically charged and there's high voltage in the air between the cloud and the ground. So the voltage tears apart the air molecules and the gas begins to glow. I guess it takes about 30,000 volts per centimeter of space to start a St. Elmo's fire. I didn't know that. Um, a scientist named Dr. Curtis Roman, who is the senior lecturer in Aboriginal Studies at Charles Darwin University, is apparently collecting stories from the Aboriginal people of Australia to find some dominant themes regarding the Midman Light. Oh, wow. One thing I found fascinating, he states that water is a consistent factor in these sightings. Many of the sightings have taken place near bodies of water or where there was once water. Really? Kind of like the will-o'-wisp in the marshlands. Yeah. And so he says there's a suggestion that the lights perform a guardian's role to check on sacred sites and perhaps to scare off people who aren't supposed to be there. I like that. So he also says that the Aboriginal Dreamtime stories should be considered in explaining this phenomenon. Dreamtime is a term used to describe Aboriginal spiritual beliefs. There are consistencies in descriptions of how the lights move. Mm. 
basically like a snake, which may link in with indigenous people's beliefs about the rainbow serpent. Now the rainbow serpent or rainbow snake is a common deity often seen as a creator god known by numerous names in different Australian Aboriginal languages and is a common motif in the art and religion of Aboriginal Australia. Now, not all of the myths uh, link a rainbow with the snake and not all describe it as being a snake, but there's usually always a link with water or rain. That leads me back to the will-o'-wisp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the will-o'-wisp, like I said earlier, is a glowing ball of light that travels around marshes and swamps, but it also has many links to English and European folklore. So it's also known as a jack-o'-lantern, which is where that got its name. I had no idea. And it's said to mislead weary travelers in the marshes who think it's a flickering lamp. Trickster. So on Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon, Volume 1 Folklore, uh, it discusses that various cultures believe anomalous lights to be shape-shifting witches. So the New York Onondaga tribe call these lights in the forest witch lights, though they were equally associated with little people. Oh. Sounds very fairy-ish. Yeah. And very... Little gray alienish. So, where the footprints end also references a tale of Bigfoot transforming into a ball of light. What? So, that story was taken from an article called When Strange Creatures Get the Urge to Change by Nick Redfern. This article is talking about this area in Texas called the Big Thicket. It's in the Piney Woods area of East Texas, and specifically about a road named Bragg Road, which the locals call Ghost Light Road. So it apparently has about three centuries worth of ghost light reports. That's crazy. Um, These ghost lights range from tennis ball to beach ball in size and exhibited signs of intelligence, including approaching witnesses and sometimes circling them in an almost playful fashion. Ooh. He then talks about Rob Riggs, who was a Bigfoot researcher that lived in the area. He had collected numerous reports of these ghost lights dating back to the 1800s. He also was receiving reports of large black leopards and hairy humanoids that were reported to vanish and transform into these glowing orbs of light. That's... What? Extra wild. Redfern states, three such reports surfaced in 1977 and from entirely unconnected people. Two encountered the big thicket man beast and one the paranormal panther. All three witnesses swore that in barely a couple of blinks of the eye and as the creatures realized they had been seen, they became as still as statues. Then rather incredibly, They shrunk in size and transformed into small balls of light that vanished into the trees. That's terrifying. (laughs) And into the trees. Yeah. It's like the very first thing of the Minmin light talks about the ghost light. Yeah. Vanishing ghost light into the trees. He then discusses the incident that where the footprints end mentioned. Now, this was on Bragg Road or Ghost Light Road in 1998. 
A group of campers witnessed an eight-foot-tall Bigfoot who vanished in a flash of light, and then a small golf ball-sized orb light could be seen in the area for about 20 seconds. It finally fizzled away and made what was described as an electrical crackling noise. What? So the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, something I came across while reading the 37th Parallel by Ben Mesrick. So in 1944, there were reported sightings by American pilots during World War II in the German-occupied territory of Rhine Valley. Now, Rhine Valley is just all across the Rhine River in Europe. So these sightings are what coined the term Foo Fighters, which Alex told us to look into. Thank you, Alex. Very interesting stuff. Apparently, that name comes from an officer in the 415th Night Fighter Squadron who loved a specific comic strip called Smokey Stover. One of the signature lines from that comic strip is, where there's foo, there's fire. So also, Roswell Records was founded by Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters in 1995. So, you know, he's definitely super into this stuff. In the 37th parallel, it includes an article from the New York Times on January 2nd, 1945. Balls of fire stalk U.S. fighters in night assaults over Germany. The Germans have thrown something new into the night skies over Germany. The weird, mysterious Foo Fighter, balls of fire that race alongside the wings of American fighters flying intruder missions over the Reich. American pilots have been encountering the eerie Foo Fighter for more than a month in their night flights. No one apparently knows exactly what this sky weapon is. The balls of fire appear suddenly and accompany the planes for miles. They appear to be radio controlled from the ground and keep up with the planes flying 300 miles an hour, official intelligence reports reveal. There are three kinds of these lights we call Foo Fighters, Lieutenant Donald Myers of Chicago said. One is red balls of fire, which appear off our wingtips and fly along with us. The second is a vertical row of three balls of fire, which fly in front of us. And the third is a group of about 15 lights, which appear off in the distance, like a Christmas tree up in the air and flicker on and off. The pilots of this night fighter squadron, in operation since September 1943, find these fiery balls the weirdest thing they have yet encountered. They are convinced that the Foo Fighter is designed to be a psychological as well as military weapon, although it is not the nature of the fireballs to attack planes. A Foo Fighter picked me up recently at 700 feet and chased me 20 miles down the Rhine Valley, Lieutenant Meyer said. I turned to starboard, and two balls of fire turned with me. I turned to the port side, and they turned with me. We were going 260 miles an hour, and the balls were keeping right up with us. On another occasion, when a Foo Fighter picked us up, I dove at 360 miles per hour. It kept right off our wingtips for a while, and then zoomed up into the sky. When I first saw the thing off my wingtips, I had a horrible thought that a German on the ground was ready to press a button and explode them, but they don't explode or attack us. They just seem to follow us like will-o'-the-wisps. 
Lieutenant Wallace Gold of Silver Creek, New York, said that the lights had followed his wingtips for a while, and then in a few seconds zoomed 20,000 feet into the air out of sight. Lieutenant Edward Schlater of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, said that he had seen the Foo Fighter on two occasions and it looked like shooting stars. In his first experience with them, Lieutenant Gold said, I thought it was some new form of jet propulsion playing after us, but we were very close to them and none of us saw any structure on the fireballs. Washington, there is the Yakima Nation Reservation, where there has been a long history of UFO sightings and strange orb light phenomenon reported. These sightings even caught the attention of scientists in the 1970s and prompted a study called Investigation of Nocturnal Light Phenomena, 1973, Sighting Reports from Toppenish, Washington, by David W. Akers. One of the reports is from July 27, 1973, at 3.38 a.m. The activity location was at the Zilla Cemetery in Zilla, Washington, which is right next to the reservation. A deputy marshal was driving one-fourth mile east of the Zilla Cemetery on the Zilla Toppenish Road when he observed two side-by-side orange balls of light straight ahead of his patrol car to the west. The lights were above and behind trees located in the cemetery over the Yakima River, which runs behind the cemetery. His attention was diverted momentarily from the lights while he shined the spotlight of his patrol car into the yard of a house on his right. He again looked back to the cemetery and saw the lights were moving in his general direction. Mm. Yeah. The marshal drove to the entrance of the Zilla Cemetery, opened the gate, and drove into the cemetery grounds. The entrance road heads in a southwest direction, and the observer watched the lights through the trees as he drove approximately 600 feet to a point where the drive is closest to the river. He stopped the car and called the Toppenish police dispatcher on the radio, telling her that he was observing a UFO. Mm. Yeah. She informed him the Yakima Training Center had helicopters on maneuver somewhere in the area. The deputy next turned off the car engine and walked approximately 100 feet to a point where the cemetery ends in a bluff overlooking the Yakima River. The lights continued very slowly, appearing to move directly towards him. The lights, estimated about two feet in diameter, move smoothly and maintain a very rigid spacing, as if attached to each other. Throughout the sighting, they remained oriented side by side and had sharp, well-defined outlines. At a distance of about one-fourth mile from the deputy, the lights turned, still maintaining their rigid spacing and headed south. After traveling approximately one-fourth mile, the lights executed another turn and headed southeast. At this time, the deputy returned to his patrol car and called the Toppenish dispatcher again, saying in no uncertain terms that what he was observing was not a helicopter. The car engine had been off, and he had heard absolutely no noise. Of course. Yeah. Reminds me of the last episode, too. We're going to say it was a helicopter. Yeah. During the entire observation, the lights seemed to generally follow the path of the riverbed. Altitude was just over the trees, 
along the river and nearly the same as the observer. The lights were observed until they disappeared from view behind hills southeast of the cemetery, towards the town of Granger. The deputy had the impression that some mass was between the two lights because of the rigid spacing, but it was too dark to see anything other than the lights, however. So the investigation lasted about a year, but data concerning long-term trends for the UFO activity on the Yakima Reservation area was not accumulated in sufficient quantity or depth to permit a thorough analysis. But there also have been documented sightings of nocturnal lights and close encounters at fire lookouts in the Yakima Reservation for decades. Tom Petit posted a blog on onstellar.com two years ago that details sightings that Dorothy Strom, Louise Coots, and Gladys McDaniel had while working as a lookout in the 60s through the early 70s. So fire lookouts, they see a lot of weird stuff. Of course. I mean, they're out there by themselves in the middle of nowhere. Staring at the hills and the sky. Yeah. Strom defines a lookout's job as always being vigilant. You're always watching. When you go off duty, you watch. When you go to bed at night, you wake up four or five times during the night and look around. You are trained and experienced in the use of maps and knowledgeable of landmarks and telltale signs of fires. In addition to observing, the lookouts file weather reports twice a day and a third report on the wind in the early evening during the summer months. Some of the odd sights that these fire lookouts have seen are reddish-orange or yellowish-orange balls at night floating in the air at various locations over the reservation. Mm. Yeah. So these balls of light are noted to be in the rugged, unpopulated areas of the reservation. Strom and Coots usually observe these objects between 10 and 20 seconds. Generally, the lookouts spot the balls accidentally while turning their heads during watch. Now, rarely do these balls of light afford long-studied observations. These odd balls of light also go out as soon as the fire lookout reaches for binoculars to catch a better view. So they seem intelligent. Strom said, I'm convinced those things know when you're talking about them. Several times when she and Coots alerted each other by radio of the presence of the objects, the balls simply went out. <laughs> Strom was looking out a window on a Sunday afternoon in 1964 when she spotted a shining object down a ridge about half a mile away. It looked like a pie pan hanging at an angle. She turned to get binoculars, but when she looked for the object, it was gone. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so at that point, she heard a noise above the lookout tower, which sounded like a deep whirlpool or the last water going down the drain. So she went to the door to go outside to look, but she had a strange feeling and could not open the door. I knew if I did, I'd never come back in. I can't explain it, she said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's scary. Like the portal. Yeah. So the Discovery Channel even interviewed Ms. Strom about the lights, and you can find the clip to that video in our episode notes. Ms. Strom estimates that she has seen over 100 different kinds of lights and objects. Now, Yakima is also the location of the first flying saucer report, which was made by Kenneth Arnold. Many orbs of light and UFOs are reported by Mount Adams, which is called Peto in the Yakima language Isuskin. One of the main reasons I chose to talk about this topic for this week's podcast is because my dad had an encounter with these lights. Mm. It was one of the strangest stories I have ever heard. This is what he said happened. 
I have been continuously certified as a paramedic for 29 years. I have experienced chaos, destruction, and death in my career. I am not easily disturbed by events, but this encounter has remained vivid in my memories. A few years ago, I took a break from being a paramedic and took a private security job doing armed security for a private corporation. The site I was working on was located in a remote part of the Yakima Reservation. It was at a huge manufacturing plant that was closed but in the process of trying to open. The company had acquired private security to patrol that property for insurance purposes. The site's main building was big enough to where you could park a 747 in the building and still have room to walk around. Across the road to the east towards town was another fenced part of the property. And it was basically an empty warehouse with a diesel fire suppression equipment pump that I had to patrol and watch all the fire pressure systems. When you work as security at the location, you work alone, patrolling these huge warehouses, listening to see if you can hear anybody or see anyone trespassing. Something interesting to note about this place is that the owners had multiple security personnel, but they only ever lasted one night because they got so scared. I was working alone one night in November of 2014. I always worked alone from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. That November night, it was really cold and the fog was dense. So dense that, for example, if you're driving a car, you would only be able to safely drive 10 miles per hour. At about 3 a.m. during my shift, I walked across the road going to the east to the other property that was fenced off, where there is the diesel fire suppression equipment I looked after. I always carried a high-power LED handheld spotlight. And when the weather is clear, I can stay on one part of the property and see a quarter of the mile away and look inside the other building across the road with this spotlight. I had the light in my hand and was going to unlock the chain-link swinging gate. This chain-link fence was about eight feet tall. I had just unlocked the padlock and looked straight ahead when I saw an object that caught my eye. I didn't have my spotlight on this object. I looked at it and it looked like an ambient light. At first, I thought it was an eye. Then I thought to myself, that can't be an eye. But the object looked biological, not mechanical. I was standing at the gate looking at it and it was probably about 20 feet away. My guess was that the object was about the size of a dinner plate, about 12 inches in diameter, and about seven feet off the ground. From that viewpoint, as I was staring at it, I could see it did not reflect light. It admitted light. As I was staring at it, what you are trained to do as security is issue a verbal challenge like stopped armed security. But I knew it wasn't a person, so I didn't say anything. I just stood there and stared. It then moved slowly and steadily to my right. The thing didn't bounce or move up and down. It moved very slowly and was absolutely silent. It made no noise at all. The puzzling thing, which made me think it was biological, was when I was staring at it, it looked like an eye. It seemed to have veins like human eyes do. I had little lines going through it. It was white like an eye, but it had green and blue hues to it. But it couldn't have been an eye. There was no iris or pupil. I then put my spotlight directly on it, and it looked the same, even with a light on it. I then pushed the gate open, and the thing moved further to my right. And by that time, it was 30 feet away. I once again shunned my spotlight on it, and it started to move further away from me. It looked the same even when I turned 90 degrees. I could see that it was not flat, but that it was a sphere shape and had the same appearance. It did not reflect light, it admitted its own light. 
and it didn't look like a silver balloon or anything like that. I just stood there and watched it, and it kept moving away from me until I couldn't see it anymore. I followed it for about 20 feet, and then I stopped, and it stopped again at about 35 feet from me. I backed up away from it and turned my light off for a second. I looked around to maintain my situational awareness to make sure nothing was behind me or to my side. I looked back, and the thing was gone. I don't know where it went or what happened to it. I continued on to do my job, and I never reported it. There was nothing to say. There was no challenge or threat. It was just odd. Just unexplainable. It was not a person, not an animal. I just figured it was nothing to worry about. I went back to that area during the day to look around. When the object moved away from me, it didn't go over the fence. It went as far as the fence and stopped at the fence's edge. So when I was looking at the fence in the daylight, I noticed that that part of the fence is in a recessed area of the ground. It dips down a few inches. That night, I was looking at the thing straight on, and it appeared to be about seven feet off the ground, and it maintained the same height the whole time. But if it were an animal, when it backed up to that part of the fence, it would have went into a drop-off and dipped down a few inches and had to have been 13 feet off the ground. I found that odd. It just maintained the same height. That is a wild, detailed account. Yeah, it's a lot like the deputies in 1973 at the Zilla Cemetery. The veins on it, mm-hmm. that kind of description. Yeah. That's one that I've not really come across. No. No, and it just seemed um, curious. Yeah, a lot of times it seems like some sort of curiosity. You're talking about the fire lookout mm-hmm. people and how it kind of would just disappear. Yeah. Kind of did the same thing. Yeah. In your dad's account. Yeah. Turned around. But it seemed to kind of toy with him for a little bit. It stopped when he stopped. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Like yeah. when he was walking and then it stopped. He stopped. It stopped. Yeah. And it was around 3 a.m. just like the deputies. Of course. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was interesting that when he flashed the light on it, it just appeared exactly the same. Yeah. Didn't it reflect admitted. light at all. No. It was just a mini light. It had its own light. Yeah. Yeah. And then it backed up to the fence's edge. It didn't go over it. You know, it didn't bounce up off of it. And it wasn't like an animal. You know, when an animal moves, it bounces. It didn't. It just stayed the same height, and it was just very smooth movements. And no sound. Absolutely no sound. Yeah, they're usually described as silent. And also the... um detail about the different hues in it the blue and the green because mm-hmm. even minmin lights i guess are usually white but they also say that sometimes they change color to blue or green or something and then back to white yeah oh that's kind of weird yeah and dorothea strom has recorded over a hundred different kinds of those lights out at the fire lookout. But they always disappear on remote parts of the reservation, like where my dad was. Very cool. You had a bird's eye account and an on-the-ground mm-hmm. account. The Yakima Reservation is also right next to Sadis Pass. Sadis Pass is on parts of the reservation that's only, it's 
You have to be a tribal member, basically. You have to have permission to go out there. So, mm -hmm. Which didn't those scientists? Yeah, scientists, the ones in the 70s, they had to get permission to go out there, and they were permitted. They even thanked Yakima Nation for allowing them to do a study out there. Very cool. Yeah. And you can read the full report in our show notes. It's very impressive. There's other reports in there as well. Just the deputies one really stuck out to me. Type one. Mm-hmm. Type one. Yep. Yeah, the deputies one stuck out to me because it sounded so much like my dad's encounter. It is time for spooky news. Did you know there are currently dog-sized lizards spreading in the southeastern United States? Argentine black and white tegus are a large lizard that can grow up to 4 feet in length and weigh 10 pounds or more. This invasive species has started popping up throughout the southeastern United States and is posing a potential threat to native species and farmers. Tegus are native to South America and they are omnivorous. They will eat the eggs of ground-nesting birds, including quail and turkeys, and other reptiles, such as American alligators and gopher tortoises, which are both protected species. They will also eat chicken eggs, fruit, vegetables, plant, pet food, and small live animals from grasshoppers to young gopher tortoises. They are an extremely hardy species, which makes their spread difficult to control or reduce once the species becomes established. The lizard has been breeding in South Florida for decades, but have only recently spread to Georgia, and during the past few months, the reptiles have been spotted in four counties in South Carolina, where biologists suspect they may be reproducing as well. There also have been isolated reports of their presence in Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas, as well as established populations in central Florida. Researchers are concerned about tegu's predatory behavior and egg-eating habits. The habit is so bad that in Venezuela, these lizards are called the chicken wolf. So what do you do if you come across one of these dog-sized lizards? You can contact the Department of Natural Resources. These reports help biologists document occurrences and respond effectively. Note the location, take a photo if possible, and report the sighting as soon as you can. Now remember that although tegus are not a threat to humans, they will defend themselves if they feel threatened. A group of pilots from the Utah Department of Public Safety and a group of scientists from the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources recently made an interesting discovery while counting bighorn sheep in a remote area of the Utah desert. Brett Hutchings, the helicopter pilot for DPS, reportedly said, one of the biologists is the one who spotted it, and we just happened to fly directly over the top of it. He was like, whoa, 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 turn around, turn around. And I was like, what? And he's like, there's this thing back there. We've got to go look at it. The object spotted was a large monolith, 10 to 12 feet high, metal, appeared to be man-made, and was firmly planted into the ground. After spotting it, the crew landed to get a better look. They took videos that were obtained by the local news channel KSLTV and is included in their report about the incident. Hutchins said, 
we were kind of joking around that if one of us suddenly disappears, then the rest of us make a run for it. He also stated, I'm assuming it's some new wave artist or something, or you know, somebody that was a big 2001 A Space Odyssey fan. The monolith has also been compared to the work of the late minimalist artist John McCracken, who passed away in 2011. McCracken's gallerist David Zwerner has not responded to requests for comment. Due to the fear that amateur explorers might get caught out in Utah's rugged terrain in search of the monolith, the crew has not revealed the exact location of the monolith. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Anomalous Waves. If you have any stories about these glowing balls of light, please reach out to us on email or any of our social media accounts. You can find our contact information and social media, along with all of our references for today's episode, in our show notes. Bye. Thank you. Goon the sheesh. Lily, say bye. <laughs> <laughs>